for 40 days, nearing the 40 days in the wilderness that Jesus had of temptation and fasting. And it leads all the way up to Holy Week and with Good Friday and then up to Easter Sunday. So this is a time that some of you have fasted, given up certain comforts in your life to be more focused on what God is inviting you into. Um, and, uh, and then every Sunday is usually considered a feast day. So it is a day that we're not supposed to be in a place of fasting, but we're supposed to be in a place of celebration because Sundays are the day that we celebrate Christ's resurrection every Sunday, regardless of Lent. So there's 46 days, there's six Sundays, 40 days of fasting. And what we decided to do as a church was to look at the ordinary parts of our lives and recognize how sacred those areas are. That sometimes the ordinary parts of our lives, the typical routines and like the, the rhythms of our lives can, can be very grounding, absolutely, but also uh, they can feel mundane sometimes. And I think some of us need a certain amount of exciting thing to look forward to just because our days can feel almost Groundhog Day in a way sometimes. And so um, whether it's like an upcoming trip, like a vacation that you have planned or a wedding that you're super excited about, or even like a, a, a fancy dinner out, something to disrupt those ordinary cycles, kind of shake up the mundane and, and kind of break us out of that sort of existence that many of us experience day in and day out. And I think what most of us feel, if we feel that sort of ordinariness of our lives, I think it's very common. It's not, um, it's not something that like is the only thing that like you're the only person that struggles with this. This is a very common thing that most people struggle with. And every person is looking for something more in this world, right? Like we all have this sense that there's more to life than what we are experiencing in this day in and day out of our lives. Like there's a sense of searching for meaning outside of the routines of our lives. And this pull to search and to seek, it isn't something that's wrong or something that's sinful. This pull to search and seek is, is good. It's built within you to long for, to seek after, to, to search for more than what is in this one precious life that God has given you. So, and even Jesus tells his followers to ask and to seek and to long for more of him. To, to long for this greater perspective on what God is doing, because in a world that tends to um, numb longings or medicate the seeking or even complacently ignore the searching that happens within us, this like restlessness that we might have. If we do those things, if we numb or, or if we medicate, oftentimes there's a tendency to see our lives kind of pass us by believing that it's also ordinary anyway. So what's the point of seeking more? And friends, life is ordinary, but it is sacred. And both realities belong in this one precious life that God has given you. And this community is deeply ordinary and incredibly sacred because it is made up of all of you. You are both ordinary and both sacred. You're, you're, you're a very regular person, and yet at the same time, you are declared very good. You are declared holy by God, set apart, created in the image of God. Valuable, worthy, unique person is true about you in the same breath as your just regular ordinariness at the same time. And so both are true, and who you are flows into what you do. Who you believe yourself to be directly impacts how you live this one precious life that God has given. 
your identity will directly impact your behavior and your perspective. So who you believe yourself to be, the core of who you are will impact how you live your life. And to know who you are, we, to get to like the root of your identity, we have to go back to the beginnings of scripture. We're gonna be mostly in, um, in Jesus's temptation in the wilderness for 40 days. We're gonna look at that passage. We looked at that in Bible study this week, but before we get there, I think it's important for us to root ourselves in those beginning pages of scripture. And in my experience, in my life of being a Christian and being raised in a very, uh, in very Christian family, Christian church, all those sorts of things, I feel like in my experience, the church really tends to focus on a post-fallen world. We, we tell this like Genesis 3 story of the first humans that were deceived by Satan because they wanted more than their miraculously ordinary life that they were living. Satan is a big word. I, I know I understand that, but really what Satan means is it, it means the adversary. It means Satan is the, is the one who is against God. He is the accuser and the liar. And these first humans that we read about in the beginning pages of Genesis, they, they believed that there was more beyond what they had seen, beyond God. And this liar was convincing them that they were missing out on that more. And there's this longing within each of us, friends. There's this longing within us, a searching and seeking that is built within us, that is designed by God to be fulfilled when we seek and have that longing met by God himself and God's purposes. That's where we're meant to be able to meet that longing within us. And if we decide, or if we want to meet that longing outside of God's purposes, what happens is we, we will be destroyed by that longing. We will find ourselves crumbling apart, trying to meet that longing outside of God's purposes. There are areas in our lives that are good and beautiful, like in the story, the story of the fall and the tree of the garden in Eden. This is beautiful, it's good. And Satan will distort and will disfigure it just enough where we can be deceived in thinking that this thing or that person or this other life over here will satisfy us and make everything better. And the response that these first humans had to this choice that they made of, of grabbing this fruit, of being deceived by the liar, their, their response when they saw what they had did was to cover themselves up and to hide. So they saw the deceit they fell into and instead of coming clean and instead of being honest about what happened, they covered themselves and hid. And friends, we've been doing the same thing ever since. Anytime that we step into a way of living that is not the way that God intended for us to live, we are filled with shame and we want to cover ourselves and hide behind these flimsy coverings, believing that if anybody knew what would happen, what happened in our lives or what we did, that we would be rejected or seen as non-valuable in the community any longer. So when we step out of God's intentions for our lives, we often, if we are deceived or we engage in something that's harmful to ourselves or others, we step into shame instead of vulnerability and we cover up, we hide and we close. We like, we hope that no one finds out and we believe that if they did, if they only knew what I did last year, right? Like if they only knew what is going on in my mind. If they only knew the things that I allow myself to see, if they only knew 
that if they only saw how my marriage actually looked or, or my own self-hatred or the way that I treat my kids or the racism or contempt I have towards these people, that they would leave me. And so I have to cover it and hide it and mask it and avoid healing the healing that God wants to do in my life. And this is a distortion that we tend to believe and it destroys everything God wants for our lives. A post Genesis three world is the world we live in, absolutely, but it isn't the world that we were created for and it isn't what God intended. So when we live and root ourselves in a post Genesis three world where we're just sinners all the time and there's nothing good about us, then we're living into a distorted reality of what God originally intended. Does that make sense? Okay, so this is why we pray things like, when we pray uh, the Lord's Prayer, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It is a declaration that what God intended on this earth is not the way that, it's, it, that is happening right now. And so when we pray on earth as it is, is in heaven, we are saying we wanna partner with you, Lord, bringing everything that heaven represents to this earth today. It is, it's, a, it's a prayer of rebellion against the authorities of this earth right now. It is a prayer that goes against anything that we have tend to believe about ourselves that is not in line with God. So, and this is not like some sort of an escapism theology. Like we aren't just like meant to hunker down and wait this earth out so that way we can be in heaven someday. And that's not what is happening here. We, we, when we pray that prayer, we are saying, we wanna partner with you, Lord, to bring your kingdom of heaven to earth immediately. So to understand the root of your identity, to uncover and come out from hiding, we have to begin before Genesis 3, when the good parts weren't twisted and distorted by sin. So turn with me to Genesis chapter 1. It'll be on the screen too, but I always encourage you to grab Bibles and open them up and feel the pages and underline things. There's Bibles around the room, or you can always bring your own. Uh, we're going to read verses 26 to 27, and then we're going to be in chapter two for a hot minute. So the very first page of the Bible, it says in verse 26, then God said, let, make, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. This language that we see in verse 26 of like this plural, this God saying us, it, it speaks about God creating from a relational standpoint. Like God created human beings in God's image in the likeness of God stemming from the same similarities so what it shows us is that we've been created out of a relationship and created into relationship for relationship. Like we're not meant to like soldier through the temptations and the hardship of our lives on our own. Like we're designed to share our burdens with other people. Throughout six periods of time, God spoke the light into existence, the sun and the moon and spoke the ground and the plants and the animals and the water into existence. But for human beings, God didn't speak. So turn with me to chapter two. 
this is all very familiar to a lot of you guys, which is just great. We're just going to read verse seven. It says, um, then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. So the, the story of God and creation is where God formed human beings from dirt. And the word Adam or Adama means dust or dirt. And it's not necessarily a first name, although I know it's become a first name. It was the property that God used. God used the most ordinary parts of creation, of dirt and dust. And through divine CPR, essentially, like animated the dirt with the breath of life. And then God took part of the dirt and made Eve, which means life. Eve is not necessarily a name either. It's, it's the word means life. God created dirt and life and called those two beings very good. I mean, before these two beings did anything, before they overcame anything or like had a million influencers or whatever it was, like they were called very good. Their primary identity before they did anything else was very good. And the ground and life are a holy union. It is a couple. It is a partnership. They are meant to be cherished and valued as very good. Your life and the soil are meant to be together as a holy partnership. So to bring damage to one or to the other is a form of sin. It is a distortion of God's intention. It's living outside of the way that God created us to live. There's a philosopher by the name of Mary Migdley, and I think I have a quote of hers. It says, she says, um, we are not tourists here. We are at home in this world because we were made for it. Turn to me to verse 25, chapter two, verse 25. It says, in, it says, Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. These people, these human beings like were naked. They were exposed, completely vulnerable. They were embarrassed or trying to hide themselves, trying to cover up what they wouldn't want anyone to know about them. And this relationship within those words, naked and felt no shame, it was peaceful, it was right, and it was whole. And the Hebrew language has a word to describe what this is. It's the word shalom, which I know we've talked about for a while here. That it's, it's this word that represents the way that God created the world to be. This, this sense of wholeness and completeness of all things made right, the way that they were meant to be. So for these first people in the garden together, shalom was everywhere. It was all they knew. Their primary identity, because they knew this about themselves, was absolutely beloved. They, they, they felt complete within themselves. There wasn't the sense of restlessness within themselves at this point. They felt complete within each other, within their relationship with God, and within the very ground they were created out of. And nothing about this was ordinary, and yet all of it was also ordinary, right? Lent is this time that actually reminds us of like this living ground, this ordinary living ground that we have been drawn out of, created from, that we come out of, we, we live this life, and then we come back into that living ground, our bodies go into the living ground, someday we will return to that living dust. A theologian by the name of Diana Butler Bass, she shares about like the sacredness and the ordinary dust that we have come out of, and how we are to treat this sacred, ordinary existence in a book called Grounded. Do we have a quote there too, Paul? 
So she writes, unlike other ancient Near Eastern creation stories, where humans are often gifted with exalted origins and celebrate or elaborate tasks to please the gods, Adam and Eve are made from the humus, placed in God's garden and directed to care for the soil from which they came. In Genesis, God instructs Adam and Eve to till and keep, that is, serve and preserve the soil. Thus, humankind's divine vocation is to be Earth's custodians, the overseers of the soil. The early biblical heroes are all shepherds, farmers, and tribal judges, unlike the kings or warriors who figured predominantly in the religions of Israel's neighbors, Sumeria and Mesopotamia. So this is a this is like this is like the, the groundedness of who we are. One of the reasons that we're doing these joy buckets this week on the land trust is because it's so important to recognize the ordinariness of soil and the extraordinariness of the sacredness of it all within the same breath. I just want to check in. How's everybody doing right now? Yeah, Ed. When you're talking about the ground, how sacred it is, it takes me back to Jesus using the mud to kill blindness. Oh. Totally, totally. Yes, he didn't need mud. He could have done it on his own, and yet he used the earth. Yeah, totally. Anybody else? Tegan has lots to say. I love it. <laughs> so I think it's important that we begin with Genesis 1 and 2 so we can have the right perspective of ourselves, the right perspective of God and each other and the, the soil. And it doesn't mean that things won't get distorted and twisted. It doesn't mean that Satan, this great liar and accuser won't corrupt what God created and called very good. Like we know these things to be true. We've all experienced this in our lives. We've, we've, we've experienced the lies of sin. We've experienced the ways that we've harmed other people and how other people have harmed us and, and how many times we've spent hiding behind some sort of shroud, trying not to be seen for what we've done the way that we've harmed other people. And, and yet, even in that, our primary identity, our rootedness and who we are is first and foremost as beloved. No matter how many times you try to cover up that truth of you, it's still in the core of who you are because it's how God created you in the first place. You are sacred and holy. Next week, we're going to look at um, ground a little bit with, with uh, Moses and God calling the ground holy. Moses, take off your shoes. You're standing on holy ground what that meant for Moses and what that means for us today, as well as a burning bush. But, but I think I want us to see how important it is to be so rooted in our primary identity that Satan cannot convince us otherwise. That no matter what temptations come our way, we are so clear in that foundation that it becomes like a root that goes so deep that when like storms anything, we just like, we are steady in the truth of this. After Jesus was baptized in the Jordan River, and we looked at this last week, the Holy Spirit descended on him in the form of a dove, and a voice from heaven cried out, this is my beloved son in whom I love, in him I am well pleased. And this was before Jesus did anything. He hadn't started preaching. He hadn't overcome temptation. He, had, he hadn't healed anybody. He was just this regular, ordinary guy, the carpenter, obviously the son of God and obviously God in flesh. That's a whole other thing. But mostly ordinary. <laughs> and yet this is how the father saw him as beloved immediately before he did anything else. 
And I think the reason his identity was spoken over him before he spent 40 days in a dry and dusty wilderness was because he had to know himself before he was put into a place like that. So I'm going to read uh, Matthew chapter 4, 1 to 11. And we're going to stay here for a little bit and see what comes up. If anything comes up as I'm speaking, you're welcome to raise your hand and we can talk about it and just uh, see where it goes. But just remember like that, that rootedness of his belovedness before he ever encountered temptation, I think is what we need to know for ourselves today. So it says in verse one, Matthew four, then Jesus was led by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, so already questioning his identity, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that they do, will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a, high, a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All of this I will give you, he said, if you bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and angels came and attended him. Let's just take a minute and you can keep looking through this and seeing what comes up and we can talk about the passage for a bit and then I'll, I'll bring what God has brought us for today. All right, what's coming up from this passage? Any like curiosities or questions or things that you, I know this passage, a lot of you have read this a million times and so it's super familiar, but anything new come up that you hadn't necessarily recognized before? Yeah, Rose. For the first verse, it says, then you stayed led by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Mm -hmm. So the spirit brought him specifically yeah, it doesn't feel right, right? No, I, I hate that too. <laughs> yeah, that the spirit led him to the wilderness to be tempted. It just doesn't seem like the right thing. I don't have an answer. I wish I did. Yeah. It, it, for Bible study, some people were talking about how it reminded them of um, Psalm 23, like when I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you are with me. So it's almost like, Jesus had to go through something that was really difficult, but yet the spirit was with him the whole time. He wasn't there on his own. 
Yeah. Yeah, Ed. When Jesus went into the wilderness, he was led there. He didn't go like we do, picking and scratching into the wilderness and the hard times and all that. Like, no, I don't want to go there. Mm. But Jesus went willingly. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Jesus went willingly. Totally. That's good. Yeah, Tamela. I, I, I get this, this idea that Satan has such audacity to question Jesus about his own identity. Yeah. And if Satan is going to question Jesus, who Satan has to know that that's the son of God. And if he's going to question him, then when I question my identity and that comes into to my mind, I'm thinking it's just, it, it feels like, well, not quite so much of a threat because yeah. he's doing it to Jesus. Well, of course he can do it to Right, right, right. Yeah, that's totally. How many times do we do that? Do we question our identity? And yeah, yeah, yeah. It would do a lot to My goodness, it's like crazy today. <laughs> Either they're having a lot of fun or that sounds like they're having fun. Okay, we'll just keep it at that. <laughs> I know, right? Oh man, well, this is good. Um, I think that there's a lot that we can discover in a passage like this. Um, I think what's important for us to recognize in it is that for the people that this was written to, it's always good to like, we can always get so much from God's word for ourselves, but it wasn't written for us today, right? It was written for a specific people during a specific time. And this was written for the Hebrew people by this guy probably named Matthew. And for the people who would be listening to it read, because a lot of people weren't like literate, so they weren't able to read it themselves. But those who were listening to it read would have immediately been making a thousand connections, linking them to the Old Testament, to the Torah. Just as Jesus passed through the waters of his baptism and then into a wilderness for 40 days, the people of Israel were, le were led out of Egypt by Moses. They, they passed through the Red Sea, through the waters of the Red Sea, and into a wilderness for 40 years. And it was in this wilderness that the Israelites wa wandered, and they wondered, and they grumbled, and they were curious about where their food would come from, and at the same time, they were this huge family of people experiencing similar hardships and beautiful things. They, they celebrated each other's birthdays. Babies were being born. They had like great experiences. They, they shared recipes. Maybe not because it's all manna, but you know, they're like, hey, if you try adding this herb to the manna, it tastes different. I don't know. But they were definitely experiencing life together in this wilderness. And together, they had to trust God. Together, they had to find their dependence on God. And they didn't all do it all perfectly all the time because what community actually does. But yet they were experiencing all of this life together. So this is what they were thinking of more than likely when they, had, when they would hear this, this story of Jesus. Uh, turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter eight. This is uh, the fifth book of the Torah. And, or you can just look it up on the screen as well. But uh, Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy means like a second telling. So it's, it's like basically taking some of the previous passages of scripture from 
uh, Exodus and Leviticus, and then like retelling it again. But it says here in Deuteronomy chapter eight, verses two and three, God says, remember how the Lord, your God led you all the way in the wilderness, these 40 years to humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So Jesus passing through the waters, going into the wilderness for 40 days would have reminded them of their ancestors passing through the waters and into the wilderness for 40 years. But not only would that have been familiar to them, Jesus being told by God, the father that, that Jesus is God's son and whom he is well pleased, like that would have been familiar to them as well. Because in the scriptures, we read that Adam, this dirt, Adama, Adam was considered first as God's son. But Adam did not live into that primary identity and he was deceived. And then later in Exodus 4, we read that God calls Israel God's son. And still... <laughs> And still was deceived because he did, they did not live into their primary identity. And, and part of that primary identity, part of the reason that, that has been given to the people, this belovedness of us, is to reveal who God is to the rest of the world. Our belovedness becomes a signpost pointing others to God's goodness and love. So when Jesus was called God's son, the listeners would have immediately recognized that this man was meant to be that new, new signpost pointing the world to God. When Jesus was crucified on the cross, what Jesus did is he took the cumulative weight of every way that humanity has succumbed to the deceit of the enemy. He took the weight, every area of sin and harm and shame and every lie that we've ever believed, everything that distorts our primary identity every way that we have distorted it ourselves, Jesus took it all upon himself. And when he died, all of that died with him. It is in the grave. When he rose from the dead, that did not rise with him. It stayed dead. So when he rose from the dead, he conquered sin and he conquered death and then invited every single person to find their identity in those first two chapters of Genesis, in their belovedness in the truth of who they are and were when God first created them and called them very good. And it's like Jesus is lovingly looking at each of us, gently and tenderly pulling our faces towards him. And he says, don't focus on the liar. Get your eyes away from that. Focus on me. Focus on the truth. Stay in your wholeness and your completeness because everything else is a distortion. It is not what is real. Remember who you are. Remember whose you are. And friends, when you gave your life over to Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are then grafted into this family of grumbling and wandering and wondering people that are trying to figure out how do we make it through this world that where everything is just so ordinary. You were grafted into a family that, that, that experiences the sacredness together. And even within this family, even knowing your belovedness, there will be temptations that will come your way that will make you want to cover up, will make you want to hide who you are. It's so important that we're aware of this in each other's lives and in, in our own lives, that, that none of us are Jesus. 
And yet Jesus overcame so many of the same temptations that we're faced with every day. And I think it's interesting that the tempting didn't start until after he had been in this wilderness for 40 days. And I don't know about you, but when I'm that hungry, I'm like at my weakest, right? But I don't know if you've ever experienced like um, any kind of spiritual disciplines. The longer you sit in that spiritual discipline, the longer you fast, actually what happens isn't so much of this like weakening of your spirit, maybe weakening of your body, yes. But your spirit gets like honed in differently. There's a depth of connection to the spirit of God, to like your, who you actually are than ever before when you're in that sort of space. And I'm guessing that Jesus was not at his absolute worst when the tempter came. I think he was at his absolute best. I think he was so grounded in his identity, so aware of who he was, that when that temptation came in Bible study, somebody said, it kind of sounds like Jesus is like, oh, I think with you, Tamara, like Jesus kind of pandering Satan. Like the devil's just like, hey, if you are, and Jesus is like, fine, let's do this, I guess, if you need to do this. And it's, eventually he's just like, okay, I'm done, away from me, or you, you've had your, your fun. Like Jesus is so clear in who he is. And that first temptation that Jesus faced is something that you and I are less clear about in who we are. Like what Jesus overcame, oftentimes it's hard for us to overcome. And that first temptation of turning stones into bread, I think it has this, this desire, it like speaks to this desire of like, we want what we want when we want it. We just do. Like we'll do whatever we can. We don't want to wait for anything, even at the cost of others. Like this is like, we, we deserve this because it's going to make me happy. It's going to make me feel fulfilled. This is how affairs start and addictions begin. It's how um, colonization and appropriation happened. Like I deserve this land. This is my land. It's what's happening in Ukraine right now. It's, 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 it's like the bedrock of our country. Like it, it's how um, wars start and, and sexual assault happens. Like I want this and I will take it no matter the cost of it to myself or to the people around me. Turn these stones into bread. If you want it, just do it. As long as you're happy, that's all that matters. And that's a real temptation. I think most of us at least some point or another in our lives. And then, the, and then the devil tries to tempt Jesus with prestige and influence. Like how many times are we tempted by that? Like we, we scroll through Instagram and we see these, these families and you're just like, how are they so perfect? Or how do these people have so much, so many followers or whatever your temptation is with that. But there is a sense like Jesus was tempted or brought forward a shortcut that he could have taken to achieve the goal that he probably had in mind. And, and the devil twists the words of God, Psalm 91, and takes Jesus to like the center of the world, which is the Jerusalem temple. And on top of this Jerusalem temple, uh, the, the Psalm 91 talks about the wings of God. And on top of the temple are these, these uh, areas that are called the wings of God. And he's standing on these wings and these wings are were, were built into the temple to, to show how God protects and shelters those in the comfort of his wings and he, and he's being tempted in this in the sense that it makes me wonder like how many of us myself absolutely myself like being validated being affirmed are attempted by our scope of influence in this world and validation and affirmation are not sinful but they can be distorted in a way that forms and reforms our identities if we don't believe that we are worthy without that affirmation 
And then lastly, the devil pokes Jesus and shows him the sort of power and ambition that Jesus might crave. But I know that most of us crave that sense of power and ambition, like wanting to find similar successes in our jobs or our families, or even in this church, like how many people are coming? Like when you, when you do like polls of churches, it's never like how many people are actually having a, a deepening discipleship experience with God? Like who's, whose faith is becoming more and more rooted in Christ? That's not the question. How big is your budget? How many people are in the seats? That's it. And that is, that is how we measure success even in the church. And yet Jesus is like, that's not the, that's not the measure of success that we want. That's not the temptation that I'm going to succumb to today. Power, that quest for power, that, that quest to grow something big or seem successful, it causes us to throw people under the bus, causes us to destroy relationships to get ahead. Power causes war, war, wars, it, it guts the earth, it eradicates shalom, and it, and it really does strangle the image of God. So for 40 days, for 40 days, Jesus walked close to that dusty ground. He sat with his back against an acacia tree. He slept with his head in the dirt. And he found the ground to be grounding. And for 40 days, he, he rooted himself in the truth of his belovedness while everything around him was being stripped away. And I looked to Jesus with these very real temptations and I wonder why he's able to overcome them and I'm not. Like, why can't, why, why can Jesus spot the liar for what he is? Like, why does Jesus see the accuser and the adversary for what he is? And often I am just swayed and pulled by those lies. Like, why can't I be more like Jesus and overcome it all with like an away from me, Satan, in some sort of dramatic fashion? Because every time I fail to live like Jesus, I... I I tend to pull this flimsy cover over me and I try to hide my shame and try to stay unseen. And, and I wonder, why can't I just be more like him? But Jesus overcame the world, friends. Like he undid sin and he undid death already. So maybe, maybe I'm not meant to keep my eyes on Jesus in the same ways that I was thinking before. Like maybe I, I'm not supposed to look towards Jesus as my example on how to overcome sin since he is God and he was able to do all things. Like maybe I need to look at the Israelites in those 40 years of wandering. Perhaps knowing Christ is with me all the time that I'm never alone in these sorts of spaces. I can look to my brothers and sisters who wandered where God, who wondered where God was and, and they found themselves questioning if they'd ever be strong enough to make it until the end, not even know when the, knowing when the end was. Maybe the Israelites have always had that right example of what being human looks like. That in the midst of their grumbling and their uncertainty and their lack of faith, they kept walking forward because faith oftentimes looks like walking in the dusty, dry land, even in the midst of your doubts, and temptation, and questioning your identity, if faith looks like continuing to walk in it, even when you don't know what it looks like going through it. And those 40 days that Jesus spent fasting, it helps me know that Christ felt tempted and vulnerable too. He remained uncovered and exposed, and he felt all of it. 
And to know his presence is with me, like leading to the cross. It helps me to keep walking forward, even in the midst of every uncertainty and every temptation that comes my way. So friends, I don't think that we're meant to just like look to Jesus and soldier on through, like I'm going to get through this on my own. I think we're meant to like hold each other. Like we're this family walking in in this wilderness existence and in this dry and dusty dusty land and in our belovedness together. Like we get to hold each other and pray for each other. That every ordinary moment of your life, you are first and foremost ordinary dirt with the most sacred breath within yourself. That you can remind each other of the truth of your belovedness, of that primary identity, and then move through those sorts of spaces, knowing that Jesus is with you and that we are with you. Before I pray, are there any thoughts before we go into our time of worship and communion and just being aware of the presence of God in our lives? Yeah. All of a sudden, I realized the image that I've always had of like Jesus coming out of those old days, like plastic Jesus, you know, perfectly washed hair, yes. and beards neatly trimmed, and his robes no dirt or dust on them. But as you're talking about, it, I think I can wait and probably look at that walk behind my shop every day. Like that's probably when he came out of the wilderness, like 40 days in the shower, no shaving, not much food, like. I had some dreads and didn't, yeah, totally. That's good. That's really good. Anything else? Hmm. All right. So we're going to go into our time of response. And the way that we respond is through three different things. We, um, we sing three songs in worship. Some of the words you might know, you might recognize, some of them you're, you might be uncomfortable with, uh, some of the songs you might have sung a million times in your life. And we just get to receive those words and allow them to become the prayers that we get to speak over each other and praise God over. Uh, we also receive communion every week. Uh, we practice open communion here at our church, so there's no requirements for communion we invite you to have a heart willing to receive Christ's love into your life again. The bread represents Christ's body broken for you. And the juice represents his blood shed on the cross, removing all of the power of sin and death in that very moment and from that moment forward. And so every time we, we, we receive this meal together, this bread and this juice, we are reminded that Jesus loves us, that he is here with us, and that he has made a way for us every single time. Uh, and then we also have generosity boxes. If you consider Catalyst your home, we always encourage you to see that as an act of worship. Uh, we are called to live lives marked by generosity, and this could be one of the places you get to practice that. Before we go into our time of response, we uh, pray out our prayer of confession. And this is a, it's a communal prayer. It is a prayer with lots of we language. Uh, I know that we all have things that we need to confess before the Lord as individuals, but Jesus came to save the world. And, and you are part of the world. And so as the world, we also confess in the name of the world as well. As, well. The, as the church, not just Catalyst, but the global church. 
So I invite you just for the next moment to invite the Holy Spirit to call to mind anything that you are to bring up as an individual, but also as the global church, where are we invited by the Spirit to live differently into that belovedness sort of way of being? And then we'll pray that out together. Let us pray. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. Amen. Friends, hear the good news that Christ has died, that Christ has risen, and that Christ will come again, that we've all been forgiven, and that we are invited to live into that belovedness this very moment. Why don't you stand as you are able, and we'll sing some songs together in worship today. Oh, thanks, Adam. Jesus Christ took his hands, spread them open wide. Come, all ye broken ones, none will be denied. Now went up to Galilee, what do you think I see? A band of dirty sinners there, sitting at Jesus' feet. Jesus Christ took his hands, spread them open wide. Come all ye broken ones, none will be denied. And I went up to Jerusalem, what do you think I saw? A beating Jesus through the streets, carrying a big old cross. Jesus Christ took his hands, spread them open wide. Come all ye broken ones, none will be denied.
Pound those nails into his hands Pierced his naked side Father, please forgive them Was what Jesus cried Jesus Christ took his hands Spread them open wide Come out ye broken ones None will be denied Jesus Christ took his hands Spread them open wide Come out ye broken ones None will be denied He burst out in glorious light on that third day. Jesus Christ took his hands, spread them open wide. Come out, ye broken ones, none will be denied. Jesus Christ took his hands, spread them open wide. Come out, ye broken ones, none will be denied. The witnesses surround us all, though they seem unseen. So set your eyes on the prize, Jesus Christ is name. From the love of my own comfort From the fear of having nothing From a life of worldly passion Deliver me, oh God Shall not want 
Oh, I shall not want When I taste your goodness I shall not want When I taste your goodness I shall not want the fear of serving others from the fear of death or trial from the fear of humility deliver me oh God deliver me And I shall not want, oh, I shall not want. When I taste your goodness, I shall not want. And I shall not want, oh, I shall not want. When I taste your goodness, I shall not want. And I shall not want, oh, I shall not want. When I taste your goodness, I shall not want. And I shall not want, oh, I shall not want. When I taste your goodness, I shall not want. When I taste your goodness, I shall not want. To my soul 
'Cause you're all I want. 